Let's stand up. Lord, thank you for who you are, your goodness and your grace. Pray your anointing, your power, your blessing. Ask you to anoint me as I bring forth the message. You'll help us to hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So I started something a couple weeks ago before Jamie was here uh, that I want to continue along the lines of, and I know it's it's disconcerting and troubling to <laughs> to people, so definitely not a Mother's Day message. Um, but I want to talk about the the dark side, or if you will, the the sh- what I'm calling the shadow side of God. So, from a psychological perspective, just to give you some framework for this again. From a psychological perspective, we all have a social self or a self that we present to others. Uh, We have a self that we present to ourselves. And then all of us have this thing that Carl Jung called the shadow side. That can be anything about you that you don't want other people to know. could be anything about you that you don't like, that you've edited. Oftentimes, people aren't even aware what's in their shadow. It's why he called it that, because it's sort of the dark side. It's, it's where everything gets hidden. And uh, if you don't think you have that, then you've got it really bad. Because <laughs> you're totally asleep to it. Got it? So it's just better if we all just chill and realize that's part of being human, that's part of the human experience, and in reality, it's part of what God put inside of us. It's true. One of the problems with religion is it demands a certain social self that you present as though it were your fully authentic self. Which just makes the shadow darker. And then if you don't know you have a shadow because you can't admit you have a shadow because it bothers you because you think God can't handle the fact even though God's the one that put it in there to begin with, then you project it onto others. Which is why oftentimes you hear preachers thundering from pulpits and people clapping and cheering for all the verbal abuse they've been taking from the pulpit. <laughs> oh, I, Pastor, I just love it when you step on my toes. That, that is not a good thing. I love you, love it when you tell it like it is, right? You, you understand what I'm saying? But it's, but it's, it's not an empowering, direct, coming from a, a place of soundness and wholeness and spiritual health, it's it's telling it like it is out of a disowned and projected shadow self. Yeah. Got it? So the fact of the matter is, when it comes to the Bible, when it, well, let's just talk about Christianity in general. Jesus loves me, one of the first things I learned, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, how? For the Bible tells me so, right? So we get our information about God, we get our information about Jesus from the Bible. The only problem is there's lots of stuff in the Bible that I bet you you didn't even know was in there that, that isn't so loving and isn't so good. We, we used to say God is good all the time and all the time God is good, but in the Bible God is not good all the time. Yeah, I said it. So what, what do we do? We hide those verses. I guarantee you some of the stuff I'm going to share today, you probably never heard in a church before. You probably didn't, maybe didn't even know that was in the Bible, unless it was something to support Israel so they could go out and do what they did in the Bible and kill Palestinians, lots of whom are your Christian brothers and sisters, and we support them and send them U.S. military power and dollars, and, and people get on Facebook and say, oh my God, somebody took a stand against Israel, and now, you know, earthquakes are going to happen, or something, because God's judging us, because and, and all this old covenant paradigm. Right. So, for example, what if I told you today that today well, we read in the, we read in the paper and we, there was a a group of uh, religious extremists who went into a community and killed everybody, killed everybody the 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 babies, the moms, the dads, almost everybody, killed the animals, burned everything, all in the name of God. Oh yeah, but they kept the virgin girls as sex slaves in the name of God. What would be your moral sense about that? Would, would you think that's moral? Would you feel good about that? Would you, or would you be outraged by it? And you'd say they're an extremist, they've lost their minds, they're radicals, they're fundamentalists, right? Terrorists, right? Except, that's actually a story from the Bible, Numbers 31, that God commanded Israel to do. 
Oh, we clean it out and it says, take all the virgin women as your bounty. But what do you think that means? So basically, take all the young girls and rape them. All right. Oh, and God commanded this, by the way. See, that's part of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the shadow side. You don't hear that taught in church. You don't hear that talked about in church. You certainly don't hear that preached in church. What do we do? We pick the nice verses. So we create a social self out of the Bible to put the best presentation forward so that people will think like us and want to follow us and join our club. <laughs> and we, we keep this other stuff hidden. And if anybody brings it up, it's like someone in the family who talks about the elephant in the room. You know what I'm saying? Those families that have the big elephant in the room, but they're so dysfunctional, they can't talk about it. Right? But somebody does in the family. It's like, oh, you know, everybody gets nervous. Everybody gets pat answers and tries to shut that down because they're nervous, right? So you should try asking preachers or Christians, uh, well, what about this passage? <laughs> what about God wiping out the, the Canaanites? Well, what about genocide in the Bible? What about, what about, I mean, think about Noah's Ark. Think about the story of Noah's Ark for a minute, right? I was, I, I, it just don't, I mean, cause like for your kids, right? You make your room in Noah's Ark because you got all the animals and they make these little Noah's Ark toys that are just these cute little, you know, things and, and we teach it to our children in Sunday school class. So think what we're teaching our kids. God got so mad at the humanity that he made that he wiped everybody out including the animals. And the only reason the species was perpetuated was because you had Noah and his family. They were the righteous ones, though they don't look that righteous after the story, if you keep reading. Just saying. And enough animals that they could procreate and populate the earth again. That's a horrible story to tell your kids. That's part of the shadow side that you're... <laughs> but we make it nice, and we don't, we, we don't even think it through. Are you breathing? Let's just look at some of this. The Canaanites. This is some of uh, uh, God's shadow side. Now I'm going to just fire a lot of scripture at you, and I didn't have time to get it on the slides. So you just have to try to stay with me and listen, all right? You can write it down, whatever. Listen, Go back and listen to it. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2. And when the Lord your God has delivered them, the Canaanites, over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Deuteronomy 7.16, you must destroy all the people the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods for that will be a snare to you. Deuteronomy 20 verse 16. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Three-month-old infant, there's a place in Psalms where it says God takes pleasure in that infant's skull being dashed on the stones. Bet you didn't know that was in the Bible. (laughs) Think about it. Nothing breathing. And so why did God do that? Well, they were so corrupt. These are some of the answers. Like, 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 this is what I was trying to say. You try to ask people, they just dismiss it right away, outright. Well, God's, God's justice is not like our justice. God's ways are higher than our ways. I didn't finish my thought there, but you ask about God's shadows. Well, they take, God's ways are higher than our ways. His just, you, you just can't understand His justice. Really. You just dismiss genocide and rape and because God, somehow that's just. And then we just move right along. That's typically the answer that you get. Or, oh, they were just so corrupt. There was no saving them. There was no sparing them. Well, then how does God save anybody? Why don't we just implement that today? Oh, because you're supposed to preach the gospel. Well, couldn't God have brought the gospel along sooner? I mean, we don't like to ask these questions, do we? Actually, here's, here's some of the answers you get. God, God had them destroyed because he saw how morally corrupt they were. Sounds good, right? God knew they would turn the hearts of Israel away from him. That makes sense, right? 
or it was just. You know, the problem with all those answers, they sound really good, but it's not what the Bible actually says. The Bible actually gives the reason that God ordered their extermination of the Canaanites. It has nothing to do with those things. But you have to go back to Genesis to find it. And chapter 17, verse 8, The whole land of Canaan, where you now resigned as a stranger, God speaking to Abraham, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So their problem was not that they were more corrupt than any of the other surrounding nations. Their problem was their address. It was their address. It was that they dwelled in this land that God promised to give to Abraham. And why? Well, you got to go back even further into Genesis. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 21. Genesis 9, 18 through 21. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And these were the three sons of Noah. And from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. (laughs) Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. I, I mean, does that seem like a big deal? I'm sure they had a good laugh about, hey, look, you know, old man got drunk, you know. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. And when they walked backward, they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. And when Noah woke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves. Will he be to his brothers? And he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be slave to Shem. So here's here's the deal. When the earth is being repopulated, you have Shem through whom the line of Abraham comes. And you have Canaan who comes from Ham. And basically, Noah was angry. <laughs> Noah got Noah, I mean Noah's the one that got drunk laying there naked. But he gets angry that the one son talks about it, so he puts a curse on him that they would be slaves, and he elevates Shem. And so therefore, from that, God picks someone from the line of Shem, Abraham, and says, those Canaanites that live over there, you're going to have their land, because something their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-
1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Because Saul didn't go in, or yeah, Saul didn't go do it, right? He kept alive the best. To obey is better sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. You know, God bless people in churches. I, I gotta just take off on some, some leadership issues here in a minute with pastors. We're the authority. You do what we say. You submit. And if you rebel, it says the sin of witchcraft. You know what the sin of witchcraft for Saul was? He didn't kill all the babies. All the camels. All the sheep. That was his rebellion. Isn't that lovely? He exercised the conscience. Oh, we'll get on the Nazis at Nuremberg who, well, we were just following orders. And we'll say, there's no excuse. But that's what you got here. You didn't follow those orders, so here we go. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. And er What I'm saying is we cherry-pick these verses and throw them at people to make them do what we want, and we don't even blush about it. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So let's go back. Why did God order this? It was Amalek's sin. The Amalekites sin. Or they waylaid, we looked at it, right? They waylaid Israel when they were coming up out of Egypt. What you probably don't realize was that was four centuries before Saul. Four centuries. So let's do it like this. Let's say, um, oh, let's just pick 1860. White European imperial power is wiping out Native Americans. 1960 is 100 years. 2060, I think probably all of us will be gone on to the next life. 2160, 2260, and here comes the great buffalo spirit with his vengeance on white folk for what they did to the Native Americans. Does that give you a little better perspective? God's punishing people 400 years removed from the sin. God is good all the time. All the time God is good. Yeah, 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 yeah. We believe the Bible, brother. From Revelation, from the Genesis to Maps, we believe it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. God is good. God is good. God is good. Wiped out those Malachites 400 years later. Sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to lighten it up, I guess. But I don't, I don't think it's working. I better move on. In case you didn't believe me, Numbers 31. The Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. So Moses said to the people, arm some of your men and go to war against the Midianites so that they may carry out the Lord's vengeance on them. Send into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. This is the Lord's vengeance. <laughs> so num- uh, it, they fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man. The Israelites captured the Midianite women and children and took all the Midianite herds, flocks, and goods as plunder. They took all the plunder and spoils, this is in the Bible, including the people and the animals. In case you missed it, kill every man. So it was just the women and children who were the spoils of war. Hmm. Reading right along. Verse 15. 
Have you allowed all the women to live? He asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the pure incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man. But save for yourselves every girl, every girl who has never slept with a man. Take them for yourselves, boys. This is the Lord's vengeance. Pretty sick, isn't it? Give me a second to switch some things here. So, are you saying help yet? <laughs> what about God's wrath at His own people? Let's look at some of that. Leviticus 26, 27 through 29. If in spite of this you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger I will be hostile toward you, and I will punish you for your sins seven times over. And you know how God's going to punish them for their sins? Get this. You will eat the flesh of your sons and eat the flesh of your daughters. I'm going to starve you out until you have no choice but to become cannibals and turn on your own children. That's how I'm punish you for not doing what I said. Hmm. Oh, and God's wrath isn't just about the big sins either. is isn't just about homosexuality and abortion. Whatever. Getting drunk at the, I don't know, wherever you do that. <laughs> Listen to this. Numbers 15, 32 to 33. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Hmm. Maybe he, maybe it's cold. Maybe he had to cook some food for his kids. Who, who knows? Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly. And they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. What did, what did we do with this? Do, do, so here's the question. Here's the question. Because if you're honest about this, you have to look at this. There's really only one of two ways to go about it. Either those stories, the way they are written, are true revelation about God, in which case God is kind of a monster. Or it's not accurate revelation about what God did. So you either end up with a flawed and human book or you end up with a flawed and very human, maniacal acting God. If God's really like that, then let's preach it. Let's don't hide it. Let's not say we, we believe all the scriptures and then not talk about that stuff. Let's preach it. If that's really how God is. But if God's not like that, then what do we do with the Bible? Get an awful quiet in this Methodist church. Here's our problem. Listen, the Bible you have is not a singular book written by one author. It is a collection of stories. It is a library of books written by different people in different genres over a span of centuries of time. Let me read you what one scholar says. Contrary to popular opinion, the Old Testament is not a single book with one unified view of who God is or how life works. It is instead a collection of books from multiple authors 
who articulate a multitude of opposing perspectives. In light of this, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, who is one of the most respected Old Testament scholars alive and is a believer, Walter Brueggemann describes the Hebrew Bible as consisting of what he calls testimony. Everybody say with me, testimony. And counter-testimony. Testimony? (laughs) Counter-testimony. The picture here is of many witnesses in a court, each arguing their case, disputing and contradicting each other. And this, Brueggemann says, is the primary mode of articulation in the Old Testament one that is very disputatious and permeated with contrariness. Let me interpret the tongue. (laughs) There's a lot of big words. The Old Testament is not a book for life. It's not a manual. It's not a map. It's not an encyclopedia. It's It's not a science textbook. It's not even a history book. It is a contest. It is an argument about what God's like. And you have many different voices putting forth their side with all their different agendas. It is not something that's to be read as this is the... the, the, Every verse here was just dripping off the mouth of God. Therefore, it's completely uh, without error and accurate in all things because actually the Bible does contradict itself. You'll see it here in a minute. And here's an Old Testament, one of the most respected Old Testament scholars is telling you, this is how the Old Testament works. Or you can have that God that's that way, I don't know. Maybe you'd rather have that. Let me give you some examples. Isaiah 115. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. I'm not hearing you because you have too much bloodshed on your hands. Oh, but wait a minute. Didn't God order all the bloodshed? Or did he not? See, what we don't realize is the prophets come along and are actually critiquing. See, you, you want to know the truth? Your, your Bible was not copied down after Moses. You know, like, like I think we have this idea, Moses wrote it down, received it directly from God, handed it off to Joshua, he wrote it down, and it just kept getting passed down. That's not how it works. Not what happened. What you had was an oral culture that told all kinds of stories, but the people who actually put the Old Testament Bible together were the kings right before the Babylonian exile and the religious leaders right after the Babylonian exile. So they had a political agenda. So what better agenda than to present your nation, your authority, your rule, your kingdom as something ordained of God with God on your side? If you don't see that in the Bible, you won't see it happening today. I know people think like that I just like giving Republicans a hard time, and I know it triggers people. I don't like either side. What I, what I, but listen, listen. What I don't like about Republicans is they believe God endorses their agenda and the liberals are their enemies. And nothing could be more counter to the gospel or the teachings of Jesus Christ. Go go, go Google or go on Amazon. You'll find tons of books written to, about Jesus being a liberal. Read some Mennonite books. they got a whole lot more scripture in them than your pro-life pamphlets. And for people that think that I'm not pro-life, I, I got somebody gets triggered every Monday when I do this. I get a text. You're after the Republicans again. You don't get it. It's, it's because the evangelical Christian community believes somehow that God is a Republican. And I have a prophetic responsibility to tell you God and Jesus are not Republicans, nor are they conservatives. Now, if you want to be a Republican and a conservative, I respect that. 
I respect that. If you want that label. And people say, you know, well, you're, you're a liberal. I said, well, that's quite a shock to my liberal friends. <laughs> I am not a liberal. I am an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> but do, do you understand my heart on that? Because you have the same thing happening in the Bible. You have the kingdom being centralized in Jerusalem. And God is being presented as on the side of the empire. So then the prophets come along later and they say, no, he's not. He's like this. And they begin to critique the empire, which is why they got killed. All right, moving right along. I hate to tell you this, but to, to call Jesus Lord and Savior, I might as well just go the full way, right? Like, I mean, I'm opening up enough can of worms. People are going to be like, what kind of Mother's Day was this? <laughs> How was church? Oh, it was great. <laughs> to call Jesus Lord and Savior was a term that was reserved for Caesar. So to say Jesus is my Lord and Savior had nothing to do with getting out of hell. It had to do with a complete renunciation of the empire. Thank you. You see it? All right. What about animal sacrifices? Exodus 29:18. God says, "Then burn the entire ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma." A food offering presented to the Lord. Man, that, that, what was it, ram? That lamb smells, sure smells good. Mm, mm, mm. But then Psalm 40 verse 6 comes along later. Look what it says. He says, burn it as a pleasing offering to the Lord. And then in Psalm 40 verse 6, he says, sacrifice an offering you did not desire. So which was it? Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not command. Which is it? Or Isaiah, again, back to Isaiah 1, verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to, them, to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat, of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. That's a shock to people. I thought, I thought God needed that blood to look at Israel. I thought he needed that blood sacrifice so that he could, they could stay in good favor. And he says, I have no pleasure in that blood. None. Don't give me that blood. But you didn't know that was in the Bible. You guys are looking at me like. Deuteronomy 28 verse 63. Listen to this one. Just listen to this one. Remember when God said, if you, if you disobey me, um, what I'm going to do is make you a cannibal with your own kids? Listen to this one. Deuteronomy 28, 63. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please Him to ruin and destroy you. (laughs) You'll be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. So God gets His pleasure either way. He gets His pleasure blessing you and prospering you if you obey Him, or if you don't obey Him, He gets His pleasure by turning you into cannibals. Making you eat your kids. Destroying you totally, completely. Either way, He's happy. You pick. Gang, I'm just telling you what's in the book that we believe. From Genesis to Revelation to the maps. Yes, sir, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. No, 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 no. God said it. That settles it. I believe it. See, I could get that southern preaching thing going if I really wanted to. I could get fill up there on the keyboard and I can dance around. I like that stuff. I'm not making fun of it. I'm just letting you know it's in me. All right. But watch this. God just said he had pleasure in that, right? People say the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Yes, it does. Because here's another one. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. People who say the Bible doesn't contradict itself don't know their Bible. They don't know it well enough. Because I was there for a long time. And people tell me, man, you know the Bible better than anybody I know. I didn't know it contradicted itself until I studied it more. All right. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your ways. 
Why will you die, O people of Israel? And I could keep going on showing you stuff. In, in the law, children are punished for the sins of their parents. But then later on in Ezekiel, he says that's absolutely not true. A person dies for their own sins. See, if you don't understand that it's a critique, if you don't understand that it's basically an argument, then you don't get it. So not everything in there is a revelation of who God is. And here's the other thing that's amazing. There is a progressive revealing. See, I totally believe in spiritual progress in humanity and spiritual evolution. Spiritual evolving. Progressive revelation. See, if we would understand something very simple, it's so simple that we miss it, but it's so profound. In the beginning of the Bible, to set up the whole story. When God saw all that he had made through his own eyes, he looked and he said, Behold, everything is very good. And when Adam and Eve ate at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Bible says the eyes of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. And they heard God and they thought God was angry. They thought he was wrathful for their sin. And they fled from the presence of the Lord and hid themselves. Here's the shift. In the beginning, we're looking through God's eyes. After the fall, now we're seeing through the fallen eyes and mind of Adam and all of the projections of his own shadow image onto God. And if you don't understand that the Bible is being, the Old Testament is being written from that perspective, I doubt you even understand Christianity or why Christ came. Because Christ came to open the eyes of the blind. Not just Physicalized. That was just a sign of the spiritual work that he was doing. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Healing to the brokenhearted. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's completely anti-empire, anti-establishment. He's for empowering the individual and he critiques the power structures that rob people of that power. And the most powerful thing he does is bring a revelation of what God is really like. See, if you could understand that the entire Old Testament, that basically Adam put God on trial when he said it's the woman that thou gavest to be with me she gave it to me to eat and there was an accusation and so god through israel is put on trial to determine what his character is like through the fallen mind of man so you have the witness of the empire Coming through the law, you have the witness, you have the critique of the empire coming through the prophets, you have the plaintiff, you have the defendant, and then God says, okay, now it's my turn to speak. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time. Seen. Because everything up to this point is through the fallen mind of Adam. 
It's not God's shadow that we're really talking about. It's humanity's shadow that we project onto God to justify and validate our own selves and think it's the voice of God speaking back to us when it's our own self-idolatry and self-reflection. No one has seen God at any time, but the Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known to us. And what is He like? If you want to be sons of your Father in heaven, then love even your enemies. For God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. He's all-inclusive and non-discriminatory in his love. And finally, the same John, who wrote those beautiful words in John chapter 1, makes the most profound, powerful, definitive statement about God ever made in the Bible in 1 John chapter 4 when he said, God is love. Not God has love, not God is loving. God is Love. And so therefore Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. And whoever loves has known God. Not whoever prayed the prayer. Not whoever got baptized right. Not whoever's on the church. Whoever loves knows God and abides in God. And whoever does not love does not know God. And this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the evil one are. It really is that simple. Interesting that it didn't say this, and I'll be done. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made, and in Him was life. And life is the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness. Get it? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend or overcome it. And the Word became a book and went to Zondervan Presses, and you can get one at the local store and find out what God's like. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's amazing since I've been on this journey in the last two years how many people I've met in the metaphysical community specifically who have met Jesus in a personal encounter in the Spirit. And they're walking with Him and they're being transformed and they're being more loving and they've never been inside the door of a church. They don't own a Bible. They've never prayed the sinner's prayer. Jesus just showed up and started walking with them and they started obeying him and their lives were being transformed. I hear from these kind of people locally and whoever watches this or listens to the podcasts consistently. So what if we... See, to me, it's helpful to think that the book's not perfect. If the book's not perfect, maybe I don't have to be perfect. If the book can be human and God can still inspire it and God can still shine through it and God can still do things through it, then maybe I don't have to be perfect and God can still inspire me and God can still shine through me. And maybe if I quit worshiping the book and started pointing people to the reality of Christ in them and the reality of a God that loves them, then maybe, just maybe, I don't have to sit down with atheists and try to explain how the world was created in six 24-hour days and how does that jive with science. And Maybe I don't have to try to explain who was Cain's wife, what was his sister. Yeah, but isn't incest? That's just disgusting. Um, I don't have to do all that stuff. See, if you have high certainty needs, then you, you like that the Bible tells you, I want a map to life. A map to life is in your heart. It's in you, not outside you. It's easier if the Bible just tells us, well, all, all gays are going to hell. You know, they just are because they're gay. We don't like that. 
just it's just easier. Cherry pick a few verses here and there and just here we go. Hate. Judge, condemn, punish. Right? Let's just do that. So much easier than trying to grapple with the issue of Jesus' commandment to love and try to figure out what is the loving ethic without an encyclopedia to tell you what to do. You, you engage in God. You engage in your own heart. You engaging people in a loving manner and then following the witness of your spirit instead. I wonder what would happen. Same Bible that subjugated women, justified slavery. And we look back on social reforms and we say, oh, well, slavery's been abolished, but you don't realize it was the Calvinists, quoting the Bible, that were fighting it the hardest. Southern Baptists. Why do you think they're Southern? Why do you think that gets attached to it? You know, the Assembly of God church began because, man, the Pentecostal outpouring was so powerful and so wonderful, so amazing. And you know what was so powerful about it? It was so multiracial and multicultural in the early 1900s. And God saw the unity. And it was being led by an African-American man who was blind in one eye. And he couldn't go to Bible school because he couldn't sit in the classroom with the white people. So he he sat outside the window of Charles Parham's Bible class and heard him talking about speaking in tongues. He got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there was another group of African-American women who had been praying for God to move in Los Angeles. Praying for God to send them a man. And William Seymour had a vision. Saw the address. Holy Spirit told him exactly where to go. And you want to read about powerful miracles like we've never seen. Read the accounts of what happened in Azusa Street. children would come in, the glory of God would be so present that it would be a a golden mist in the air and children would come in and play with it. Why? Look, can't you just see God looking down? Consider the time, 1900, they're, they're loving each other. God took the one that couldn't even attend the Bible class. Revival swept around the world and finally a group of people got together called the Assembly of God and said, we can't worship with all these black people. So you don't even know the foundation of the most powerful denominations in our country is racism. Look it up. So anytime there's progress, anytime someone's heart begins to change and say, you know what, maybe we should reach out to this group of people. Maybe we should love this group of people. Maybe we should treat them as our brothers and sisters. Some Bible thumper comes along and says, oh, no, we can't do that. Bible teaches slaves, be submitted to your masters. Bible teaches wives, be submitted to your husbands. I can't believe we still have churches that teach that crap. Not the slavery part. Nobody dare do that. I mean, they probably do. Some crazy group in the Appalachians or something probably does. But you understand what I'm saying? Today, it's, I'm sorry, it's the gay and lesbians. If you think there was a biblical category to describe the kind of relationships we have today, you are completely kidding yourself. Because I got news for you, ladies. You didn't walk up front 
and take your vows in front of the high priest because you got to choose who to marry in the Bible. You were sold by your daddy. There were no vows. And guess what? Mom and dad, you don't believe me? Read Genesis. Mom and dad are watching because they got to ensure the product that it hasn't been tainted. So there, can you imagine that? There you are on your wedding night, boys, and there's the father-in-law, mother-in-law watching over, making sure that, the, you know, she's a virgin when you're done. How's that work? There were no categories for marriage or sexual orientation like we know today. So we can stand by the book or we can engage our hearts. We can engage the heart of God. We can engage people and maybe just maybe be at the forefront of something that God's doing so that a hundred years from now they'll look back and say, remember. When they're, just like we say, remember when there used to be slavery? Remember when there was less empowerment for women? And I'm not saying either one of those causes are over. Don't don't get me wrong. Maybe they'll be looking back and saying, remember when they were so horrible to the gays and the lesbians? I wonder. Let's stand up. See, I wonder, do we really believe the new covenant? Do we really believe in the love of God like we say we do? Would you rather have a flawed book or a flawed God? I'd rather have a flawed book. And I'm perfectly comfortable with it, saying that it's inspired of God, that it's revelation, that it's necessary. And I love the Bible more than I ever have because I understand it now better than I've understood it. And as a result, I love God more, and I love people more, and I love myself more, And if Jesus said, judge things by their fruit, then I feel like I'm in a pretty good place. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, I pray somehow, some way, whatever was said will bring healing to people's lives today. Father, I I pray that there will be the healing presence of Jesus Christ, the healing grace of God, the healing love of Christ to come over our hearts, come over our minds, wash over us. Lord, the people that we've judged, the people that we've held grudges against, the people groups that we have emotional charges on, will you help us to be free enough and empowered enough to examine our own hearts before you and let us not be afraid of change. Let us not be afraid of embracing new ideas, especially when those new ideas are loving and powerful and transformational to our own hearts and eventually working its way out into our society, to our neighbor, to our friends, to those we once called enemies, Lord. May we learn to truly love them. And I ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.